Saturday. Uh, we are streaming today live. We're going to do a show on NBC's recent piece on Christian nationalism, which came out, I think, a day ago, two days ago. It's very recent. I think I watched it part of it yesterday. I did not watch the whole thing. Uh, we might watch the whole thing or we might just skip around a little bit, but it was interesting to me because it shows us what the, not just political opponents of Christianity, but I would say those who are more secular, you know, atheistic, secular-minded, uh, anti-Christian, what they think of conservative Orthodox believers. And Christian nationalism is the new kind of boogeyman term they're using. But I think this segment shows us really what they mean by that. They think of it as theocracy. And anything that would have influence in society from a Christian perspective gets categorized as theocratic or Christian nationalist. So um, one of the reasons I wanted to do this was because someone texted me last night and asked me about Christian nationalism, just kind of out of the blue. What is Christian nationalism, John? And I said, well, you know, about 100 years ago, it would have been Fabian socialism for Americans because Americans didn't like socialism. They associated it with atheism. They associated it with immoral behavior. And so people who wanted to bring Fabian socialism, otherwise known as progressivism, to the United States, some of them at least, thought marketing it as a Christian thing would, and a patriotic thing in some senses, would actually make it uh, more popular. So they marketed it as Christian nationalism. And you can go look up the Bellamy Clubs, that there were hundreds of them. I think there was over 500 across the country at the around the turn of the century. And you can see the kinds of things they advocated, a living wage, it was really socialism. Uh, and, and they call it Christian nationalism. And uh, of course, Bellamy, not to get into the weeds on this, but um, Edward uh, Bellamy, I believe, was the one who wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. So um, I know there was there was two of them. There was Edward Bellamy, and then there was his cousin um, that wrote Looking Backward. Now, see, now I'm blanking on it because it's been a while since I looked this up. But uh, I know if you get the book Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict, which, uh, by the way, is on sale right now for 1150. Uh, I have a little bit on there. There's Francis Bellamy and Edward Bellamy, and, um, and and they were cousins. And the Bellamy clubs were these Christian nationalists, but really Fabian socialist groups with, throughout the United States. And that's when you see the term being used a lot. So um, so anyway, I talk about this a little bit in that book, uh, and I, I do need to let people know that uh, AD's book, um, which I don't even have a copy now because I ran out of my last one is not available anymore. So if you order these two, I know in the last podcast I said, if you get Social Justice Goes to Church, if you get Christianity and Social Justice, I'll throw in 80s book, Social Justice Pharisees. Well, I'm not going to do that anymore because <laughs> I don't have it anymore. I've, I've uh, Thankfully, a lot of you have made that purchase, and so um, that uh, book is is out of stock. But you can still get a really good deal on both of these books for $11.50. These are autographed copies, and, uh, and that'll help you out with understanding social justice and things like Christian nationalism to some extent. I'm planning on actually writing more on this subject because I think, and NBC is showing us this, I believe, this is going to be the boogeyman that they're going to rip out for probably the this election. They're already doing that to some extent, the midterms, but I think the presidential election more so. The threat that's on the horizon in their minds is a reinstated theocracy of some kind. So uh, I want to talk about this a little bit today. And uh, I want to 
um, I want to put some meat on the bones. So if Christian nationalism was this way to try to introduce socialism over 100 years ago, now it's not the same thing. In fact, if you look, if you if I had it up for you, I could probably have thought better about this podcast. I should have pulled it up. But if you have like a Google Ngram uh, search, so it, it'll show you words, word usage over time, you'll see that nationalism wasn't as popular. Patriotism, especially in the founding generation, but through, I'd say the 19, early uh, 1900s would have been the popular word to use. Nationalism, uh, especially since the rise of the Nazis becomes a more popular term to use. And that's exactly why I think the mainstream media wants to use nationalism. They want to associate anyone who's Christian who wants to have an impact in the civil realm or the cultural realm as a Nazi somehow. And this is their way of doing it. It's no different than, I think, Adorno's F-scale that he used in psychology, one of the Frankfurt School um, thinkers who, who thought, well, if you, know, if you love your family too much, or if you, you love your country too much, you know, you're kind of a little bit of a fascist in there. And you, he would have a scale and you would score a certain um, number on the F scale to see how much of a fascist you were. And, and this is kind of the same thing. They like to connect everything to their arch villain in their minds, uh, the Nazis since uh, World War II. And so this is one way to do it. And using the term nationalism, I think, is um, a very on, on purpose. It's very purposeful. However, the right has kind of embraced this, this pejorative. And it's it's an interesting thing that's going on because oftentimes the left will say something about the right politically, and it's just not accurate. It's it's maybe partially accurate, but it's lacking somewhere, and the right reacts against it. And in this case, though, what seems to be happening is the left is actually accurately portraying, in some senses at least, what Christian conservatives want to do. They're accusing them of, you want your religious views, your biblical principles to be applied in the civil realm or the cultural realm. And the Christian conservatives are saying, yeah, that is what we want. <laughs> we don't disagree with your analysis of us because that's that's an accurate portrayal. And so the media calls it Christian nationalism and the left-wing academics call it Christian nationalism. And so people on the right that hear what Christian nationalism is, is according to them, say, well, yeah, sounds good to me. I guess I'm a Christian nationalist. And, and so that's what we have going on right now. But it's no different than what the media said about Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson, uh, the moral majority, the religious right, uh, all of that back in the 80s. It's the same kind of boogeyman. It's just a new term they're using and they're becoming more aggressive. So let's uh let, let's do this let's uh watch this particular segment and then we'll stop it as we go i don't know i, I might do the beginning and the end i might cut out the middle we'll see just because it's uh it's a lot of uh focusing on uh moscow idaho and doug wilson's church there and um and it's very interesting i'd encourage you if you're interested watch the whole thing but what i'm more interested in for the sake of this podcast is what what are the left-wing people thinking so they do their analysis in Moscow, which isn't terrible. They just interview people in the town. But the, the, uh, it, it's kind of bookended by their biases. And that's what I want to examine, their uh, assumptions, their biases. So we will start uh, here with the video. This uh, video came out on September 15th, it says, so two days ago on Meet the Press, and here's, and the title is Christian Nationalism on the Rise. I believe the article on NBC 
uh, has the word theocracy in it. But here is the article or the, the video. Welcome. You have made it to episode one of season five of Meet the Press Reports. Thanks for being here. Theocracy. It isn't a word you often hear in American politics these days, but given the religious rhetoric coming from some Republican candidates this year, it doesn't feel as far-fetched or hyperbolic as it would have been in the past. Frankly, it feels... Notice Baptist News Global is on that. That's interesting to me. Baptist News Global. Take note of that because that's a news outlet that tries to influence evangelicals or make out like they're Baptist and... Uh, here we have Meet the Press, which I wouldn't say would be a friend of conservative Christians putting that right out there is, yeah, just along with the Tampa Bay Times and Newsweek and all these other organizations, Baptist News Global. There are candidates embracing the idea that whatever the First Amendment actually says about the free exercise or establishment of religion, that this wall between church and state should actually come down. And not only that, these folks argue the wall was actually never supposed to be there in the first place. In fact, here's Lauren Boebert. She's a freshman member of Congress from... Okay, let's stop right there. First of all, someone corrected me or, or clarified in the uh, chat, which I appreciate. Earl Starbucks said, Francis Bellamy wrote the Pledge of Allegiance, and that's exactly right. I think I might have said Edward Bellamy. That was his cousin. Edward Bellamy wrote the socialist book, Looking Back, uh, look, which was very popular. Looking Backward, I think was the name of it. But uh, Francis Bellamy is the one who wrote the pledge. Uh, so those are the Bellamy cousins. And uh, that's the Bellamy clubs where, where Christian nationalism, originally that term was used. But um, what you just heard from uh, the presenter here is that he, he makes some conflations. There's some assumptions here right away. And it seems to be that the assumption is that the First Amendment is in conflict with the group of people. He's signaling to you, we have a group of people that disagree with the First Amendment. First Amendment just says this, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Now, the establishment of religion is the first in the list. And it, if you notice, it's very simply in plain English says Congress, Congress, okay? The national government we're talking about here, the general government, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Doesn't say that state governments can't do that. Doesn't say that uh, th th there are other entities outside of Congress that can't do things like this. It's Congress that shall, shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, of course, with the incorporation of doctr doctrine, this is kind of, this notion has gone away um, because uh, we, we apply this now to the states and to local municipalities even. But um, originally, the intent was, and what it really still says, and I think it should be, uh, we should read with authorial intent, it's Congress that shall make no law establishing uh, a religion. Now, uh, or, or I should say, respecting an establishment of religion. Here's the thing, though. Uh, at the time that this was adopted, nine of the 13 colonies, or states at that point, had established religions in their states. Nine of 13. The majority had religious tests for office or state-funded uh, religious entities. Um, they, had, they, they had firmly established churches that, uh, you know, for instance, what we just saw, this would be a good example to kind of parallel because it's hard for us in our society to think of things this way. We have to go back in time and uh, have the assumptions of people that lived at those times. But if you just noticed last week with the death of the queen in England, there was a lot of religious pop, pomp and circumstance associated with that. In fact, 
King Charles had to make a statement about allowing the Presbyterian church freedom to exist and worship and all of that, which you think, well, that sounds archaic, and it probably is, but it's because Prince Charles, now King Charles, is the head of the Anglican church. They have an establishment, even if they don't really recognize it, <laughs> that's not, it's more symbolic than anything, but there still is this archaic kind of mechanism of established religion in Great Britain. Well, that was nine of the 13 states at the time that the First Amendment to the United States was adopted. So when, when it says Congress, it means Congress. It doesn't mean the state of Massachusetts or the state of Virginia. And then it says, or prohibiting the free exercise there. So Congress can't interfere in religious uh, institutions and their free exercise and their worship. Now, um, one of the things too, to, to note about this is that in the historical context, when it's talking about establishing religion at that time in the United States, this would have been assumed to be Christian denominations. It wasn't today's multicultural context in which you have hundreds of thousands of different uh, religions present that people claim. And and it certainly wouldn't, you would not have the large majorities in certain areas like Dearborn, Michigan, for instance, where it's overwhelmingly Muslim. You wouldn't have had that. It would have been Christian across the board or at least some version of Christendom, Christianity. So when this is made, that's what more the people have in mind who are making it. And it's assumed at that time, pretty much everyone assumes America is a Christian country in the sense that not everyone's a Christian, but in the sense that uh, we operate based upon a Christian moral framework and Christian values. So so that the first thing the presenter does here is he says that this group that we're about to witness is against this somehow. But we need to understand what the First Amendment actually says before actually analyzing whether the group that he's talking about is actually against this. Uh, the other thing is he makes a jump from the First Amendment uh, to this wall of separation, which is a term taken from Thomas Jefferson's letter to the Danbury Baptists. The Danbury Baptists were very concerned when Thomas Jefferson was elected president. And their concern was mainly things that were said about Thomas Jeff Jefferson. There's a lot of mudslinging in that in the campaign and against him because he was supposedly this atheist because he, he had sympathies with the French Revolution. He was actually an ambassador to France and he kind of got on board with that to some extent at the time. And so they, they thought, well, this guy is going to foist atheism upon us. He's gonna bring in the French Revolution into the United States. That was Thomas Jefferson in the minds of his opponents. So the Danbury Baptist Association writes a letter to him and basically says, look, we've heard this about you and uh, we just wanna kind of make, make sure we're okay, that we can freely exercise our religion. And uh, I'm obviously summarizing, but Thomas Jefferson writes them back and he uses this, this phrase uh, and he attributes it to the First Amendment that there's been a wall made between the establishment of church and state. The reason he said that though, was to comfort the church. It was to assure them that he's not going to interfere with their practice of, of religion in the state of Connecticut. That was it. That was the point. It was really more emphasizing that second part of uh, the First Amendment uh, establishment clause when he's saying, we're not going to interfere. It's, he, he's not trying to create the impression that religion has no uh, bearing in in politics or there's no uh more morals that stream from religion aren't going to be influential in politics which is what i think this presenter is trying to uh, set up as kind of the the dilemma that 
we have in America with all these people who want to bring their Christian principles in uh, to the public square. They're contradicting the First Amendment and they're contradicting Jefferson. Well, Jefferson authored a bill for the establishment of a public school system in 1817. Uh, in, in D.C. And uh, if you look at this particular bill, you can see you get a window into Jefferson's views on the relationship of government and uh, and church. And, and really what Jefferson seems to indicate, if you if you look at the the draft. So there were certain things deleted in the manuscript. Um, some of some of the things that he deleted were he had requirements for those who were instructors or, or um, I guess they would have been. Uh, well-informed people to assess the public education, the requirement was that they could not be ministers of any denomination. And, and the purpose for this, if you, if you read the document, because it comes up again in the document that uh, no, there should be no religious reading in education instruction um, that is uh, inconsistent with the tenets of any religious sect or denomination. In other words, what Thomas Jefferson's doing is, and this gives you a window, is he's trying to look for a common ground with the people uh, at the time and their Christian belief. So it's it's what he's getting away from is denominationalism. We shouldn't favor a particular denomination. We should we should have a broad Christian outlook, which today would be considered extremely narrow. But at the time, that was very that would have been uh, they didn't have the word progressive, but it it would have been more liberal, I suppose. And but but that would be raving right wing lunacy in the minds, I think, of most people uh, today on the left, because they would just say, wait, you, you still think that we should have Christianity, Christian instruction in the public schools, as long as it doesn't favor a particular denomination. And Jefferson would have been like, well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> what else? What other kind of education is there, really? I mean, that's just the world that they uh, lived in. You also have um, and this is very interesting to me in 17. 79 on uh there was a bill and this is by the way the same year jefferson uh drafted i believe uh, a bill for religious to toleration or the disestablishment of the church and state relationship in virginia the uh of course at the time you had the anglican church uh, previous to the united states uh was the official church in virginia so thomas jefferson authors this bill to disestablish it and to promote the, the freedom of of uh, conscience and and so this is hailed by the left as this great step but also that same year thomas jefferson wrote a bill for punishing disturbers of religious worship and sabbath breakers and let me read for you a portion from this if any person on sunday shall himself be found laboring at his own or any other trade or calling or shall employ his apprentices servants or slaves in labor or other business except it be in the ordinary household offices of daily necessity or other works of necessity or charity, he shall forfeit the sum of 10 shillings for every such offense, deeming every apprentice, servant, or slave so employed in every day, he shall be so employed as constituting a distinct offense. Thomas Jefferson wrote that. In other words, we're going to fine you if you violate the Sabbath. This is in, of course, Virginia. This isn't, broadly speaking, the whole country. This is specific to Virginia, but this is the same Thomas Jefferson that supposedly was so against any Christian uh, value or principle being applied to the government. And so obviously that's hogwash. That's not true. The founders would have been fine with Christian principles applied even to the national sphere. What they were suspicious of, and in the historical context, what they were uh, concerned about from England was this, uh, this establishment in which the church and the state could kind of collude 
and could uh, t- could punish people that deviated. For instance, Baptists were punished severely in places where Anglicanism was the established religion. And that was the kind of thing that they were getting away from. In fact, during the revolution, they were very concerned in Canada that it would be officially Catholic and that this was one of the the things that led to the revolution or the war for independence was this fear that that could happen in the, what is now the United States. So you got to look at it at the time in which these things were written. These are documents of antiquity. They are not they weren't written in, under the present circumstances. And so in the circumstances in which these people wrote these documents, they were concerned about something very specific. And it wasn't that, oh my goodness, we could have someone who's a born-again Christian that might want to uh, enact some of the principles, the, the basic principles uh, from Christianity in a in our sphere, in, in the government. Uh, we didn't have the rampant secularism. So I know everyone's like, John, please... <laughs> <laughs> Let's watch the video. Yeah, I know. But I think it's important to lay this groundwork and you'll, you'll start to spot some of the historical problems with this particular segment. Uh, and uh, and I think um, it, it, it'll just enrich it for you. So let's keep going here. She was speaking this summer to congregants. Here's what she said. The church is supposed to direct the government. The government is not supposed to direct the church. That is not how our founding fathers intended it. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. She's not alone. The Republican candidate for governor in Pennsylvania. She's not alone. (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say that was phrased very eloquently. We can at least admit that. But uh, what she's reacting to is the misuse or the weaponization of this phrase separation of church and state by the left. I don't think she's critiquing Jefferson's meaning when he said that. But it's the way that the left has taken this and used it to ram secularism down everyone's throat. And so uh, so what she's saying, I mean, I, I, I would be inclined to put a what I would think would be a more accurate spin on this or, or interpretation, which is that the church leading the state, in other words, Christian values being implemented in uh, because you can't have a valueless government. It, it, the government's just a mechanism for the use of force against people who break the law. So how do you know what laws to enact and to uphold? Well, you have to have a moral framework somewhere. So I think that's what she's talking about there. But um, they just take they take this clip and they're going to take a few more clips of people saying things that might not be articulated the best, but they are uh, then used to drive home this narrative that there is a threat of individuals in the United States on the conservative side who are against the Constitution or against Thomas Jefferson, who uh, because they set up at the beginning this kind of straw man. The nation's fifth most populous state said this to his supporters. So much for this this myth of separation of church and state. That's right. And here's that's the same position that Michael Perutka, the Republican nominee for Maryland attorney. That's literally the only thing in the clip. He just said so much for this myth of separation. Well, it under the leftist definition, it is a myth. So it, it, their their spin on it is a myth. Attorney General, he's it's a position he's taken since at least 2014 when he called the separation of church and state quote the great lie, and he added, "There can be no separation of God from government because He capital H there created it." That would have been news to the founders, especially Thomas Jefferson. Whoa, 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 whoa. Thomas Jefferson. It would have been news to Thomas Jefferson that God was the creator, which would include government. 
I mean, I'm thinking of a very popular document that Thomas Jefferson authored where he talks about, I don't know, a creator, inalienable rights. But news to Thomas Jefferson. Who was the first of the founders to use the phrase, the wall of separation metaphor, to describe the First Amendment's religious freedom protections. Other Republicans, though, are openly embracing Christian nationalism. So there's the moral play. You got it? The moral play is, on the one hand, you got Jefferson, who I thought was a rapist, right? A slaveholder. I thought the left didn't like... Oh, well, he's good now because he's, he's on our side on this issue, or at least we can twist what he said to make him on our side. So you have Jefferson on the one side and the Constitution, uh, the First Amendment. And then on the other side, what you have is Christian nationalists against our way of life, against the United States, against... Uh, all the good things that we've enjoyed. So here's the example that they pull from to show you the face of Christian nationalism. We need to be the party of nationalism. And I'm a Christian and I say it proudly. We should be Christian nationalists. Even the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade has religious overtones. It has been cheered on by conservatives on religious grounds. And in fact, it's actually led some liberals to look to the religious freedom restoration laws, many of them vigorously opposed over the last decade, to challenge, to use these laws as an attempt to challenge these statewide abortion bans that are being passed around this country. So, as a country, we are entering unknown territory. What is next? Where is this movement heading? We entered unknown territory when we became so secularized that in every facet of our countries, public life, especially education, we decided to um, cease to acknowledge God. And that's been obviously an ongoing process because there still are civic rituals, these archaic rituals like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance and saying under God that we still do to some extent, but they don't match some of the other actions that have been taken to root God out uh, in any reference to religion and God out of uh, institutions. So it, that's actually the experiment. That's the innovation. That's actually the new thing, because in the history of the entire world, even if it wasn't Christianity, there was a religion that held sway that was um, that people were expected to conform to in some way. You, I mean, you look in the Bible, you even see this in the Old Testament. The You couldn't really separate a nation. I mean, when you, when you look at like nations and the, the whole concept of nation, race, um, you know, region, the, these things all kind of went with religion too. You know, there is a religion for certain peoples had a religion. There was, and, and you, of course, it's not like you didn't have rebels or people that could convert that it's not like that didn't happen because you had proselytes, but it was, uh, the, the lines were much more firm. And the in secularism has given, I think, an impression and that you can be multicultural and that uh, religion really is not important. It's it's just uh, it's not the glue that makes us trust one another and stick together and can uh, bind us as a nation. And that's the innovation. That's the experiment. That's the new thing that we're really in a very short period of time trying to see if it works. We have the verdict hasn't really come in. In fact, if the verdict is coming in, it's not a great verdict, I would say. But uh, that's the the new thing. He's making out like, though, the new thing is what you're about to see. So the whole thing is, is upside down. Uh, you know, the people who want to cling to their Christianity, 
and have it influence the government. They're the weirdos. They're the ones against our founding. They're the innovators. No, they're not. They're actually the ones that are trying to go back. Even if they don't articulate it well, they're trying to go back to a time or to a, a, a system of belief that respected religion and had a moral basis for how a culture and a government should operate. My colleague, NBC News correspondent Ann Thompson, traveled to Moscow, Idaho. It's a blue enclave, small blue enclave, and an otherwise ruby red state that's grappling, that has been grappling for years with questions about the role religion should play in the public square and everyday life. In northern Idaho's dunes of grains and grass, a battle without bullets over the direction of a town. I believe that what's happening in Moscow is a microcosm of what's happening all across the country that started here maybe 10 or 15 years earlier than what's happening across the country. And that is? Um, well, just the radical division. I don't think our nation has been this divided since 1859. It's divided and it's inflamed. And uh, that whole process, I think, began to be visible here a decade or a decade and a half before it became radically visible in the nation as a whole. Pastor Doug Wilson leads Christchurch in what he calls a Cold War Civil War. Our rights come to us from God and not from the government. Fighting in, of all places, a college town. Moscow, home to University of Idaho and just eight miles from Washington State University, exudes a live and let live vibe. One of the interesting things about Moscow is how these two entities live side by side, and I mean literally. Right behind me, that's the offices of the Christ Church. And right next door is the headquarters for the local Democratic Party. From this former art house movie theater, Wilson leads his campaign to make Moscow a Christian town. Idaho is a very red state. Moscow was historically a very blue dot in this red state. And so consequently, the fact that uh, we've done this has been disruptive in the minds of some, but the feasibility of um, um, evangelizing in Moscow had to do with the importance of the university and the size of the town. So in your version of a Christian town, would there be a place for non-believers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Would, would yeah. there be a place for same-sex couples? But you mean legally? Yes. You, you mean like uh, marriage? Mm -hmm. uh, no, no marriage. But there'd be uh, same-sex couples. No marriage, even though it's the law of the land in the United States. Uh, just like Roe used to be, right? In my, <laughs> I have to say that's <laughs> just like Roe used to be. That's pretty funny. Uh, so. Whatever you think of Doug Wilson, I know there's some uh, who, who really don't like him and, and Federal Vision and all that. I, I got it. But the way they're treating Doug Wilson is the way that they're going to treat anyone who wants to do the very basic thing that I think any church should be doing as far as uh, influencing their local community, which would include their government. It has to. How, how can it not? That That's a facet and an important facet of a local community. So uh, for a church that says, yeah, we want to make our town a Christian town, what church wouldn't want that, right? And and so the fear you can see the reporter has here is that this is uh, going to drive out other 
groups of people that this is going to it, 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 there's going to be a reign of terror or something that comes when you actually uh, make a town a Christian town. So we'll, we might watch this a little more and then skip to the end just for the sake of time. But uh, they, they go and do a whole interview uh, or a whole documentary, really, a series of interviews with people in the town and ask them about this church. And they, they talk to the mayor. And so it, it's pretty thorough. Uh, belief system in our doctrinal stand and what we believe the Bible teaches. Homosexuality is not only a choice, but a sinful one. Yes. It is a muscular, masculine-led vision of Christianity. Scripture tells the man to provide, protect, and love. Scripture tells the woman to honor, help, and submit. Expounded on his show, Man Rampant. Men are going to be dominant no matter what you do. And articulated in his blogs. This one saying marriage is a little kingdom and the husband is a little king. A wife should be, should be submissive to her husband, as Paul teaches in multiple places, yes. So a wife should be submissive to her husband. But in the blog post that you just cited, uh, I made a special point of saying that the woman exercises authority over the selection of the one that she's going to submit to. So when you say wives should be submissive to their husbands, does this mean, why shouldn't they be equal? Um, well, because God created us a certain way. So we want to fit with the design. I want you to notice something. They're going through a series of what they would deem to be, I think, on Meet the Press, problematic beliefs that would, if this town became a Christian town, that, that would just offend the sensibilities of their audience. And so the first one that they appeal to is this sort of toxic masculinity, this uh, chauvinism of kinds that... If this town became a Christian town, that would be the dominating belief. And that, and that would should offend the sensibilities of their audience so much that it, it will drive fear into them. Now, of course, when all these different things they bring up come up, you should be asking yourself, why would it offend the sensibilities of their audience? Why should it? Why, I mean, is, is there some moral principle, that transcendent moral principle, that they're appealing to that challenges quote-unquote christian nationalism because there is some moral framework they're appealing to because they're offended by this that's why they want to really dig down and find the the most radical comments and things they can from from this uh for pastor because they they want to uh, show how much of a threat this pastor and his church are but in order to show that they are a moral threat you have to have a moral standard and if you have a moral standard then there has to be a framework for that moral standard. Where is that coming from? What is that, right? And that's the sort of the um, unspoken, undefined neutrality that secularists often pretend to have, but they have their own establishment of religion that they want, is the point. That behind the veil is their, their own uh, very rigid puritanical ideas, really, about what they think is pure and good and right, and how no one should deviate from their standard. So uh, even if their standard is not a, a divine standard and, and it doesn't come from in, in a divine being in their minds, it is a standard that they've given the full weight of um, really a, a substitute divine or a, an almost divine uh, character because they, are, they have to bring man up. They have to bring the, the group or 
or if it's an individual man, it's an individual man. But I think in in the minds of probably the folks on Meet the Press, it's going to be uh, some kind of a societal evolution of where people are at now versus where they used to be and how society itself is infused with this kind of divine um, authority to pronounce laws that are good for them. So man becomes the standard, man becomes divine, and, and that's ultimately what you have in secularism. So that's what they don't tell you. That's where, where the debate should be, but the debate is rarely there. It's rarely at the, at the base level. It's, it's usually just assumed at the outset, unfortunately, a kind of quote-unquote neutral secularism. Former Mayor Nancy Cheney says the community has endured decades of Wilson's often incendiary ideas. When some uh, kind of outrageous statements were made uh, early on about uh, Southern slavery as it was, as a, as a mutually affectionate relationship between master and slave, or saying that members of our LGBTQ community, uh, trans people, should be exiled or possibly stoned, that catches our attention. Wilson says he was misunderstood, rebutting the many controversies on his website, writing he does not believe in the death penalty for homosexual acts or that slavery was a positive good. But the visible and invisible lines being drawn here and elsewhere across the country are setting off alarm bells for many faith leaders. Do you consider Christ Church a church? I don't. Really? Okay, so we're switching gears now. So they they brought up three basic threats toxic masculinity uh the uh, wilson's views on slavery and then they br and, and that was of course quicker uh they bring up the lgbt stuff and and how if you implemented this plan for a christian town you would have these these moral monsters running the show apparently but look at the disgust even the mayor she looks like she even even physically kind of looks like kind of a, a puritan almost like just so offended by this pastor who, let's face it, I mean, let, think about it. Has Wilson uh, or anyone in this particular Christian, uh, this uh, attempt to make a Christian town, have they, uh, ha have, have they purchased any slaves? <laughs> have they sold any slaves? You know, have they destroyed or killed homosexuals? Have they, uh, where exactly is the fear is my point. What, what things have happened or is it just, it, it, it's things, it, it, biblical teachings that have been advocated that um, they're afraid will lead to these these horrible outcomes. My point is that you, you don't see, at least they don't bring up examples of this really. Until later on, they they try to bring up uh, an instance of like sex abuse or something. You know, a deacon that uh, ended up um, on a sex offender list and things. That's like the best they have. They they can't really um, they can't point to examples where their fears are realized. And so I think I think it's a worthwhile point to make that a lot of this is overblown, but it, it's it's the straining at gnats and swallowing camels. It's the it's the sense of proportion that's just broken. Where, uh, oh my goodness, you know they're hiding under our bed. They're so dangerous. They're so big and powerful that how can we stand against them? And the left does this. I I've noticed uh, political left all the time with all kinds of things. They act like there's this dance going on. It seems like where they act like. The political right and the religious right in particular have so much power when in reality they have power. They have Hollywood. They have they have uh, the political realm. They have uh, the education system of this country. They have pretty much all the entertainment. Now they have big business. It's like, what don't they have? They have all the major denominations 
And yet they seem to pretend that, well, the, the religious right is so powerful. Oh my goodness. We have to, if we just keep our guard down for one second, they're going to start like killing homosexuals in the streets or something. It, it's just, it's, it would be quantifiably insane if not, so many people didn't hold to it. <laughs> if one person said this, you'd be like, look, man, you need some help. But you have like a good portion of the country who thinks this way when they are the ones with the power, the institutional power. And yet, unfortunately, there's many on the right. I've noticed this uh, in the 2020 election, especially there was sort of a braggadocious. Uh, it's probably a, a minority among people on the political right. But there's this idea that Trump was still president, that uh, they're just trust the plan. And it's kind of like we still have institutional power. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> so you have people on the right, some at least, are pretending they have power when they don't. People on the left who have power pretending they don't have power. And it's it's uh, it's quite interesting. It's like, I think if you were to take away this kind of myth they operate by, they wouldn't know what to do with themselves because that's part of their identity. It's like they're, they're still kind of operating on this 1960s, we're against the system, we're against the man kind of thing. But they're not. They are the man now, right? I really don't. What is it then? Um, I, I see it as a, as a, a dominionist cult. So now they're going to say... Dr. Elizabeth Stephen. Now, now the, the, the whole thing is going to be like, these people aren't real Christians. And the, and the logic that's being... I know some of you probably think that about Moscow and stuff, but here, here's the logic they're using. This is the important part. Meet the Press is using the logic they're not Christians because of the three things that we just talked about. Well, look, you know, they... Insensitive on race stuff, anti-LGBT, uh, um, tr masculine Christianity. That those are the things that are so offensive, and that those things disqualify them from being true Christians. Because we know true Christians wouldn't actually want a Christian town. Apparently, true Christians that behave themselves, you know, good boys and girls, they that that uh, obey the real authority, which is the government, the real God. Uh, they aren't a threat to the implementation of equity, diversity, inclusion, or anything the state wants to do. So that's going to be the next play. This leads the Unitarian Universalist Church of the Palouse. In the public square, I don't see them representing Christianity. I don't see them... She's a Unitarian. <laughs> She's a Universalist. It, that's the... This is not an Orthodox Christian at all, but that's who they got. Representing the values that, that I find in the Bible. I see them representing patriarchy. I see them... Uh... Can I ask a question too? How come the mayor and, and a lot of the left-wingers on you'll, you'll see in this interview, how come they all seem like they're vying for a job with NPR? They have their library voice on. You know what I mean. Uh, the, it's This is just an observation. This isn't even a critique. This is just... Why? Why is it the like, hello, this is NPR, and we're just so concerned about, um, in my calm voice, the patriarchy. The, I don't understand that. And I've noticed that with po people on the political left of the intellectual class for uh, quite a long time. It, you don't see the same thing on the right. It's just weird to me. Fighting the culture war. Stephen's position in that war is visible for all to see. A stained glass rainbow chalice. Wilson fights with the printed word. A prolific author, he's written dozens of books, all distributed by his own Canon Press. It publishes more than a thousand different titles. 
half of which are books and materials serving hundreds of thousands of homeschool and Christian students nationwide. Wilson laughs off the cult accusation, but the former Navy man embraces culture warrior. You can't have a naval warfare without ships, and you can't have tank warfare without tanks. And as I tell Christians all around the country, you can't have culture war unless you have a culture. Our tagline is all of Christ for all of life. So we want to be seven day a week, 24 hour Christians in everything we do. And a distinctively Christian culture is forming here um, and not reclusive and not cultic, but it's distinct. Here in Moscow, Wilson and Christ Church have built a multi-million dollar enterprise that includes a K through 12 school, a publishing house, a college and a streaming show. Pursuits that some worry will change the very character of this town. What scares me is that he is making Moscow into a Wilson town. Keely Emerine Mix is a former pastor. What worries me is not that the stamp of Christ might be wrongly. The only two pastors they interview other than the villain in the uh, this particular narrative are women, female pastors, which I find interesting. Shoved down the throats of my, my neighbors here in Moscow, but that the stamp in the foot of Doug Wilson will be wrongly and is being wrongly crammed down their throats or standing on their neck. I think that his influence on this town has been despicable. Aubrey and Wyatt Knickerbocker met two years after her family moved to Moscow, seeking a Christian town. We found what at first we thought was a very welcoming community. There was something every day, something new, some sort of baby shower or something for the school. You get very swept up in all of it. Until they heard this message from another pastor in the church. Women should wear women's clothes. They shouldn't wear pants. Shouldn't have short hair. Shouldn't have short hair. Shouldn't, um, men shouldn't wear earrings. No one should have tattoos. And then there was this, a psalm sing in the middle of the pandemic, protesting the local mask mandate, retweeted by then President Trump. Wait, doesn't that seem, I don't know. It, on all the, thi the things we've heard that are such, like, threats to civilization if you had a christian town the concrete examples they're going to are things like this like well we we had a sermon once where they said you shouldn't wear pants it's like i mean i, I don't know it's a little i don't know it seems like it's low on the priority list of things to really be concerned about given the other things that were said about how horrible this this church is and then you you have of course well they, they held a uh, <laughs> they're doing this in 2022 also, I mean, you'd think this is almost like Christchurch probably paid them to do this because uh, they're, I would say, think they're looking pretty good now. They went against the, um, the, the official narrative about this particular virus and they were in the right at the time. But now, you know, NBC is still kind of like, well, that was that was horrible to have a sing a, a time of singing when without masks. So these are the concrete examples that you can point to to say that this is horrible. This is what a Christian town would look like. Maybe everyone would uh, w would disregard the mask mandates. Maybe every woman would wear dresses instead of pants. Oh my goodness! Oh the humanity of it, right? It's like I don't know. I'm not I'm not feeling that threatened, and I I just don't think that most people, if you just pointed out these concrete things, that they would be like, oh okay. I mean, if they want to go do that, I don't have to go do that. But if they want to do that, that's fine. So. Um, 
there's a disconnect between the concrete and then the abstract, what they're uh, very concerned about. It seems to me, it seems to me at least. I'm, I'm open to comments though. If you think I'm missing something, please, uh, should have said this earlier, uh, put, put a comment in the info section and I will, or in, in the comment section, and I will do my best uh, to take a look. So uh, let's just keep going here. That was when I realized that these were not people trying to spread awareness or trying to spread the good news of Christ. It was people trying to say, look at us, we are so oppressed. Did you feel betrayed when you realized that? How would you describe your feelings? Yes, very betrayed, because I've grown up in the Christian church, and it never occurred to me that a church could be wrong and how wrong they could be. They stopped attending Christ Church. Aubrey says she... The only thing we've heard so far is she was told to wear a dress instead of pants or not not to wear men's clothes and get tattoos, apparently. that That's all I've heard so far, which I'm like, I, don't, I mean, I don't know the full story here, but let me say this because I just want to kind of make sure that I acknowledge this. There are definitely churches out there and they they will err on the legalistic side and it's not good, okay? I've seen that firsthand. It is not good at all. And some of these things, if, if it's a legalistic standard, like you're not holy if you, uh, you know, happen to wear pants one Sunday or something like if that is approached in, in a just holier than thou kind of um, with, with that attitude and it is a legalistic standard. And like, I, I agree, that's a huge problem. However, you just got to realize this particular uh, documentary, this piece segment from Meet the Press, though, it's not the title of it isn't how legalistic churches are, you know, problems or they, how they hurt people. It's not about that. It's about Christian nationalism. And of course, the word you heard at the beginning of this was theocracy, how theocracy is a challenge to basically civilization. That's what I'm talking. I'm saying that like that, that's a little bit of a different, like a, at a much higher level of a threat than uh, people who happen to attend a church that's legalistic are going to get hurt feelings or, uh, you know, might um, it, 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 with extreme examples, honestly, they might uh, it might actually be very serious, but it's not something Meet the Press would be concerned about where they, they become pharisaical and the rules become more important than actually Jesus Christ, who was the rule keeper, who made a way for us to be right with God and uh, did everything from zero to 100 percent. He did the full uh, measure of works and uh necessary to um, make us uh, capable uh, according, not that we're capable, but he made us able to be in a right relationship with God. It, the focus should, I think the emphasis should always be on Jesus's work. And then as a result of gratitude, we, of course, uh, we follow God's law as Christians. So I'm talking about believers here. Uh, of course, when you have a Christian town, you're going to have laws for those who aren't believers and they're, they're not going to be laws that are specific uh, to believers. They're going to be laws that are for man's relationship with man. So you would look at the uh, second table of the law and uh, apply those. Thou shalt not murder, right? Thou shalt not steal, these kinds of things. So anyway, all that being said, it's getting into Luther's three uses of law here. But you, you have um, a, a possible, I'm, I'm just want to acknowledge, there, there, maybe there's a possible problem here with a pastor or a sermon or a situation that there was some legalism that I'm open to that possibility. It just doesn't fit the narrative they're crafting here. Like, okay, 
maybe maybe a pastor did go overboard. Maybe some pastor said that things were sin that really weren't sin or that you weren't gave the impression you weren't a real Christian or you you uh, somehow, I don't know, maybe he went way overboard. Let's just create the worst possible scenario. He he made out like you you cannot be truly saved unless you wear a dress if you're a woman or something. It's like, okay, that's a problem, but that's not what this documentary is about. This documentary is about Christians having an influence on a community and being a threat to a town, and then broadly speaking, being a very threat to American civilization, to the Constitution, to Thomas Jefferson. Uh, that's the mismatch. And so uh, I just think some Christians might hear that and they might jump on that and think, wait, that is a problem, John. So I want to acknowledge, but it's not the problem that NBC is making it out to be. Online. Now they actively avoid patronizing businesses run by church members. If it was another church that owned it and they just happened to have some beliefs that I didn't agree with, that's fine. But when you're hurting people, that's when you have really crossed many lines. Are you being judged on your faith rather than your product? I believe 100% that that's true. Josh Flickner says he came to Moscow seeking a Christian community and found it in Christ Church. But his business, Journey's End Cafe, is paying the price for where he worships. I really wanted this place to be actually a bridge builder in the community. And so, yeah, it's, it's really a bummer that um, that a lot of people in the community are just so full of bigotry that they do not want to even try to build those bridges. He says his workers are threatened by crank calls and his future by a social media campaign calling out businesses run by church members. Look at what people say about my business and then pretend like I was not a white heterosexual Christian male. That would be a hate crime. Anywhere else in the country, against any other type of person, that would be a hate crime. Three weeks after this interview, Flickner announced he's closing the cafe. So how close is Wilson to reaching his goal of turning Moscow into a Christian town? Well, no one is quite sure, but... I just want to say, I'm glad they kept that last interview in because they could have taken that out. Here's the thing, though, I think... Here's the reason I believe they probably kept it in because the narrative you're starting to hear and you're about to hear more of is that sort of a sigh of relief, this horrible threat to civilization is failing. And that was the first sign. It's like, look, this business was closed down. Uh, and, and you're going to hear some more failures. And so it's kind of like, it's still this pernicious threat, but like, I think it, it, it's sort of probably, th this is the template, or this is the, like, this can be defeated. This isn't so bad so pernicious, so so much of a threat that we can't defeat this threat, right? That's, I think, what Meet the Press probably is trying to do. Like, look, it's being defeated in Moscow, so we can defeat it over the country. And yes, that is, that is some speculation on my part. I'm trying to take all the elements I can see in this video and fit them together. So I might be wrong on that, just letting, letting you know. But I, I think that's probably what that serves, why they kept that in. One has an opinion. Honestly, it's almost laughable only because you're talking about a minute percentage of the population. George Scandalos and Brandy Sullivan own restaurants and businesses on Main Street. As someone who was served on the city council, I haven't seen any traction gained in that area. There, the last two elections, there were some um, candidates who were members of Christ Church, and those elections were 
uh, very uneven <laughs> and um, I would call it a landslide there you go in yeah. defeat yes you have 700 did you notice the witches in the background of the restaurant the the, the little uh, painting of the witches <laughs> what a contrast active households about 2,000 church attendees this is a city of 25,000 people is the way to reach your goal to bring in more people or to convert the hearts and minds of those who already live here? It would be, it would be both. Yeah, we, we would want to persuade the people who are already here, and we, would, we want to welcome the people who arrive here. Like many other churches, Wilson's deals with accusations of sex abuse, including a deacon this summer pleading guilty to a federal charge of child pornography, and Wilson marrying a released child molester to a church member. The thing that upsets people is not the child molestation offense, because there are 20, 30 sex offenders in Moscow, and everybody knows the name of one of them because of where he goes to church. Right? The ones who don't go to church, they're all okay. They stay out of the newspapers. But the one who is repentant and wants to live right and is, you know, uh, straightening, straightened out, we're going to go after him because this is, um, uh, because they're, the target is actually me. Wilson, if anything, seems energized by the criticism and attention and undeterred from his goal. Do you see expanding this microcosm? from Moscow to the un full United States? Uh, it's, hard, it's hard to envision how that might happen. I think it would be, I think. That's the fear, that's the fear right there, right? So the, it's one thing, a, a town in Moscow, but it, this happens all over the United States. It would be wonderful if it did. So if there were a reformation and a revival, that's something we pray for regularly. And if what is happening here caught fire and spread elsewhere, I, I would be very, very grateful. We're going to look at how these dynamics are playing out in our national politics and how the forces of Christian nationalism are likely to impact where we are headed with both political parties. Next. The forces of Christian nationalism. Now, before we get to the segment, uh, which we will uh, be playing here in a moment, I want you to think about an issue that the left is very, very concerned about. And that is immigration. They are very concerned that people uh, who want to cross from South America and Mexico, Central America, on our southern border should be allowed in. And that we should not uh, try to uh, detain them. We shouldn't uh, separate children from those bringing them in uh, so as to vet uh, that that is a humanitarian horror and crisis. We shouldn't have cowboys or border patrol that dressing cowboy uh, paraphernalia or, or gear going out there with their uh, reins and trying to kind of corral people to go back to their side of the border. We shouldn't um, really enforce our laws. And, and we've had how many millions of people who, who have come in since the Biden administration took over. Yet, we saw last week when Florida, when the governor of Florida sent a number of uh, children, I think they were children, uh, if I'm not mistaken, but illegal migrants to Martha's Vineyard, they were immediately, uh, we'll just use the, the word uh, in vogue today, they were deported, okay? They were deported, they weren't welcome, they were deported in Martha's Vineyard, where these people who are so concerned about the southern border situation live. So they're okay with these people living in your backyards, not theirs. Now, why bring that up, John? Well, because 
in this particular scenario, you have a town that the, the fear seems to be that it will be overwhelmed. Uh, the last questions you heard, it'll be overwhelmed with Christians moving there to try to be part of this effort to make the town a Christian town. And this, if this spreads, if this idea that we can just kind of take over towns as Christians spreads, we're going to be up a river. I mean, this is going to be bad. This is negative. This is horrible. And that is also, though, even though it's you don't think of it as a national immigration issue, th there's still an element of of uh, immigration to, to some extent. You have people moving from other states to Idaho where they can have an influence uh, on a particular town there. And this is something that drives fear into the left. Normally, immigration in the abstract is such a, a good thing. Even if it's a legal migration, it's such a good thing. But when it's perfectly done and legal, when it's Christians who are doing it, when they're coalescing together to be stronger together than they would be uh, apart from one another, people who, who have Christian values, that's when it becomes a threat. That's when it becomes bad. That's when it becomes something that uh, is concerning. And, you know, I, I don't know if I would be with uh, the Moscow crowd. I, I don't know, 100 uh, percent on all, you know, all, everything that we've even just viewed. But I think the thing that we would have in common and all Christians in the United States or people who even have just Christian values have in common, they don't even have to be an Orthodox believer. You just have these Christian values is we are against the secular state claiming to be God. And we think there are certain rules God has given that must be implemented. And we think there's a design that he gave us from creation. So we look to his laws authoritative. That's all it takes. And that's what I think this this whole piece demonstrates. It's that's all it takes. The reason they're talking to to Doug Wilson is because there's been somewhat of a measure of success or momentum or attention in his particular town, and it's it is sort of a think local kind of approach, which I, I think is good. Um, I, I don't know if I would differ. You know, I'll just I'll just throw this out there, but I do tend to be more of a localist, and I I do tend to think of. Um, I, I guess I'm just thinking of like what I lived in the South, you know, and I lived in like Wake Forest and I lived in Lynchburg. And even though I grew up in upstate New York, I, I had um, a lot of family in Mississippi and I, I just was always kind of respectful of other, uh, other cultures and Southern culture being one of them. I just thought, you know, I, I saw so many examples of Northerners coming down and then just demanding and expecting that things operate the way that they did up north that I was just like, it's rude in my mind. It's like going into someone's house that you're a guest in and you're like, well, they have a nicer house than the junk heap I just left. <laughs> They're welcoming me in, but now I want to do all the things that made it a junk heap. That's, I, I always bristled at that. I didn't like that. I wanted to be, uh, to honor the local customs. Right. And so hopefully that's happening in Moscow. I don't know whether it is or not, but, but that would be, if, if you're going to have people migrate to an area as, as long as they're not sinful, I think you become part of the area, right? And, and I'm a, let's just assume that is happening. So I, it's a question mark in my mind. Um, there are, I know, groups out there that sort of have this v idea that there's a Christian culture, which is very separate from a local culture. And I just think these things, they blend. They, they, it, it's not, when, when you come into a new place, obviously you don't leave your Christianity behind at all. But there's... There's a lot of tradition and custom, I think, that's very important uh, for maintaining local identity, building local trust. And if you have an, a large group of people, I'm saying, move at all at once into an area, it really does change the character of the area. I'm seeing that right now, actually, where I live, I live in New York, because people from New York City have moved up in droves 
it has so changed the area that I live in. And it's created, I think, a lot of mistrust. That small town kind of neighborly feel is kind of like, I you don't see it anymore, really. There is a lot of mistrust. It's just interesting. I've seen this in real time. I've seen this with um, even just groups of people uh, moving in. I know there was a Hasidic community that moved into a town not far from me. I don't live in that town, but it, it was interesting to me because I was a, a repairman at the time. I would go to these houses in this area and the what would be considered, I, I, I would suppose, I guess, anti-Semitism was present there. And I just I was it shocked me. I remember when I would go, I'm like, what in the world is all these people concerned with Jewish people moving in? But when you saw how it was such a large group of people, there wasn't any assimilation. They took over the school board right away. They took over the local government. They they changed, they fundamentally changed the culture that people had been living there for generations. And it just was so drastic. It There was a kind of a little mini backlash. And and so anyway, I just, as a thought that came to my head that I thought was important to share that if we're going to do this, this Christian uh, localism thing where we, you know, one town at a time, I think that's great. I, I think it's awesome. Uh, and, and, and perhaps it's being done right. I would just want to ensure that like, hey, when we come in to a local community, uh, we are becoming part of that community too. And we are going to be living with non-Christians. You don't, look, even in your own churches, you don't have a hundred percent Christian commitment or, or Christian conversion rate because there's weed among the tares. You're going to have fakers. So even if you can't guarantee that in your own church, that everyone's a Christian, you can't guarantee that in a community, obviously. So you're, you're definitely going to have non-Christians that you are um, needing to do business with. And there's going to, there's going to have to be something in common you have. You can't be so separate is what I'm saying where, yeah, you have a distinct culture in the sense that you're Christians and you have Christian values and that does create somewhat of a separation, but there, there still needs to be, I think, as much as you possibly can, a bridge that you build into the local community, which is I'm really ha- happy to hear that people are running for like local office. I think that's, that's good. Um, but yeah, like uh, I, I just I just notice a tendency not not in this example, but in other examples that I on a smaller scale that I've seen where it's like, well, we need to occupy the time of all our congregants for every alternative that the um, voluntary associations in, in our community have. So if there's a community softball team, we need to have a church softball team. So the guys don't go to the community softball; they come to the church softball team, right? We need to occupy their time with the the men's ministries to to such an extent that it's like they don't even they can't get involved with anything in their community. That's where I I see that. Well, like be a salt and light, go to the to the local, you know, softball team and and be salt and light there. That would be if you can. Maybe it's so dark that you can't. That that could be. But I think in most circumstances, you can get involved in your community. And that's that's a really good way to bring that Christianity rather than being insular which is what I, I've seen sometimes happen. Not accusing anyone in this video of that happening, but I'm just saying that would be a concern I have if this plan is going to be implemented. So that's not the concern NBC has or Meet the Press, really, obviously. They're not concerned with making sure local community cultures uh, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> stays con- consistent. Their their concern is that, oh my goodness, people are going to come in and bring their Christian values with them. And, and oh man, if they have power, we can't let them near the lovers of power. What what will that do? I mean, maybe babies' lives will be saved. Oh my goodness! So here's their analysis. The experts come in to analyze this interesting phenomenon. I mean, it's the phenomenon that created this country: people fleeing religious persecution uh, in other places to to be together. I mean, and, and to enjoy a certain level of of liberty and influence and things. Uh, you know, that I thought that was American. Apparently not. 
Welcome back. We've ingested a lot, so let's do some digestion. We brought together a panel of experts, NBC News correspondent and Thompson, who's just in Moscow, Idaho. Andrew Whitehead, he's a professor of sociology at IUPUI in Indianapolis, and he's the lead author of Taking America Back for God, Christian Nationalism in the United States. Former Republican Congressman Carlos Corbello of Florida is also an NBC News political analyst. And Anthea Butler is chair of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of White Evangelical Racism. Welcome to all of you. No America. bias there, And let of me course. start here. No bias. Which is, um, you went there, you did this piece. There's a lot of concern about what's happening. After doing this piece, are we making too much of what's happening with Christian nationalism? Or is this the beginning of something? No, I don't think we're making too much of it, Chuck. I asked um, Reverend Stevens, who's in the piece, who opposes what Pastor Will... I gotta say, if they're gonna do like a new mo a murder she wrote movie, I think I found someone who could play Angela Lansbury's character. Just saying. ...is doing. I asked her, I said, are you crazed that I only show up, people like me only show up to ask questions about Christchurch? And she said, no, she feels that the country needs to know about this, mm -hmm. that there are people out there who want to take the country back to a more Christian culture. Um, and so I don't think... I don't think it's we're making too much of it. It certainly is a strong movement. You see it in mm -hmm. our politics today. Will it have legs? It seems to, at least in Moscow, have reached a certain um, it's reached its limits, I think. And it will not grow any further unless they import people. Andrew, do you think there are degrees of Christian nationalism? Yeah, there really are. Okay. So when we survey the American public, we find that Christian nationalism is really a, a spectrum um, where you have Americans on the very upper end who strongly embrace these ideas that the U.S. is a Christian nation, mm -hmm. that it plays a special role in God's um, work in the world globally, um, all of those things. And then you have Americans that... Um, you know, think Christianity should play a, a role in American society, but wouldn't go so far as to say mm -hmm. it should be privileged. And then we find that there are many Americans that resist and reject Christian nationalism as well. And so the important thing is that it's not a binary, either or, right. but that it's a spectrum of, of belief and strength of embrace of these different ideologies and ideals. Yeah. That's probably, I think what he said is probably true because the left treats it, they have such a minimalist understanding of it that it's like anyone who would want to impact society with christian values as a christian nationalist and, and but they they often will throw in things like people who do that are the same as theocrats who want who believe that we should put to death like other religious uh, people who practice other religions or something as if i you even can meet people like that there's probably like three in the united states but they they kind of like it's the left i think who has created this kind of spectrum because, I mean, this was it, it was their attack that even created the popularity of this term as of late. They're not drawing on what I talked about at the beginning of this podcast, this 19, 19th century uh, kind of uh, late 19th century, early 20th century Christian nationalism. They're drawing they're creating a new kind of influenced by the pejorative of Nazism, uh, Christian nationalism. And, and it is a spectrum. It's a, it's a weapon that they use. So I think what he said is true, but I want to say this, look at the background behind them. Look how there's stained glass windows, uh, or a, at least a band. I don't know what that is. A screen with stained glass windows. They, they, it, it's very pretty. And they, I mean, what he just described is like, well, that sounds pretty good. So a Christian's listening to this, I think like he, when she went to Moscow, the reporter, she wasn't even in like, settings that looked like churches so much 
which always like I love when it looks like a church. I just got to be honest. I love it when it looks like a church. I don't like these the strip mall thing very much. I have a lot of reasons for that. I'm not like saying you're a heretic. I would worship at a place like that. But uh, if the resources are available, right, I would love it to look like a church. And I think a lot of Christians probably feel the same way. And so it's like on this panel, you're looking at the stained glass. You're hearing the description of like, oh, well, having Christian mor morals influence society. Like, I don't know, sounds good to me. <laughs> and I think that's what a lot of Christians are like. Th there's a point at which the left and the right are almost like in agreement right now. Like for once, like the left is kind of like, well, it's, it's not good when you want to have Christian society. And the right's like, at least Christians on the right are like, well, we like Christian society. It's like, oh, we have a disagreement here. And we don't even have to like parse out where you told a lie about us necessarily, if that's the full description. So even having the stained glass there, I think it's just like, it creates more of like, uh, for, for those watching it who are Christians, that's a positive thing. That, that's why I think this whole thing is meant to be uh, drumming up concern. Some might call it kind of a hit piece or I don't know, but it, it, it's this analysis under the microscope, Christian nationalism, bad. But the Christians who actually watch this, I think are actually probably more motivated, more encouraged. They're more likely to adopt the term Christian nationalism about themselves. That's the effect this is actually probably tangibly having. It, it's, I think the people in Moscow probably I mean, they could not have asked for a better advertisement to go forward in the United States than this segment. Because people who are dealing with transgender library hour and craziness in their towns are like, you know, maybe I want to go move somewhere where people want to have a Christian town. That sounds pretty good to me. It's better than what I'm dealing with. And, and they're going to disregard all these warnings because it sounds pretty good. Where would you draw the line? Because there are many, there are many people on the left side of the political spectrum who say, yeah, you should incorporate more teachings of the Bible mm -hmm. into your public policy. But what is that line where it becomes Christian nationalism? I think the line becomes when people become so dogmatic that they want to step over into a violent space. And what I mean by that is the people who want to impose something on someone else. I think one of the great things about America is that it's a democracy, right? And that America got started by people who did, were escaping religious autonomy so they could have religious freedom. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I think is really important here... Like the Puritans who set up a city on a hill that was uniquely Christian and then kicked out Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams. Very much about democracy and religion. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's, this dog don't hunt really, but this is the uh, mythos that we get uh, from the left. In the delineation between what is Christian nationalism and what is not Christian nationalism is what are people trying to impose are they trying to use their Christian nationalism to do a takeover? Mm -hmm. And then finally, who gets to be included as a Christian you know, in right. America? And I think that's a really important part. Carl, so I want to put together two things. One is from a former colleague of yours, Adam Kinzinger. But before I get to his comments, uh, I want to play a piece of sound from uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Al Mohler, who absolutely embraces this label. Take a look. Absolutely embraces this label. Now, it's providential. We did a whole thing on Al Mohler and how he's pivoting uh, to the right. Uh, I believe political right. And so this is going to be interesting. We have the left uh, routinely speaking of me and of others as uh, as Christian nationalists, as if we're supposed to be running <laughs> from that. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, uh, I'm not about to run from that. 
And then Adam Kinzinger tweeted when Marjorie Taylor Greene said something similar, we need to prove to people we are the party of Christian nationalism, he tweeted. He then quoted, he put in what he says is a quote from the Taliban that says, we are the party of Islamic nationalism. And then he writes, I oppose the American Taliban. And he then signals Kevin McCarthy and his, what is happening inside the GOP on this issue? Well, what Kinzinger is pointing out is the hypocrisy in all of this. It has been Republicans and conservatives over the years who have criticized other countries, like Muslim countries, for imposing religious beliefs and, mm -hmm. and practices, and also for attacking communist countries for imposing atheism and banning mm -hmm. people from practicing their religion. So what's happened here? That this has become a part of the culture wars. And mm -hmm. this is the bunker mentality that Donald Trump and other conservatives have pushed a lot of the population into thinking that they're under assault. And I think, look, we have to be sensitive. The pace of cultural change in our country has been pretty rapid in recent uh, decades, I think. Depends who you media. are. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> like it's rapid for some, <laughs> yeah, it's really slow for others. I mean, you know. But, but we have to understand that some people increasingly feel excluded, mm -hmm. left behind, and obviously that generates a lot of anxiety, and that's why people act out in these ways. But when it comes to our leaders, I think Kinsinger is right. I mean, we have to be consistent, and we can't be hypocritical in saying, you know, these countries shouldn't do this and that, but it's okay for us to do it here because it's the religion that we prefer. Andrew, what do you make of this active debate inside the GOP? So, so the assumption there is that there is this neutral standard somewhere that's not, that's a-religious. There's no religion informing it that we can all kind of function in this principle pluralism secularism whatever you want to call it where we can respect one another we can also have public trust to i guess work together to form an economy and to form an education system and to defend ourselves from enemies abroad and domestic enemies and it's going to be enough to bind us all together to form laws that have moral teeth in them because the government is just forced the government is going to take whatever laws that are given to it, and they're going to apply those laws. Those laws come from a moral framework. You can't escape that. So what he's trying, he's trying to criticize any regime that would basically have values and impose those values. Well, guess what? The United States is no different from that. We're just in a transition period. We're really transitioning from a very uh, religious, Christian in particular, uh, dominated country in the culture with a limited government so you didn't have to have all these uh like sabbath laws and things like that that wasn't ever a national thing that was a uh that was imposed on a local or a state level so so a lot of these things were imposed on local levels laws against sodomy on the local and state levels that kind of thing so we we had that society and now we are tra in transition to a ripping all that down to a uh, secular society in which and, and this is why I wrote Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. It's a society that has a new religion, a social justice religion. And government's God in that scheme. Um, and it's, it's human wisdom, the evolution of the human uh, through the dialectic process of the human spirit is what uh, guides us onward and gives us moral principles. And, and of course, that's very subjective. That can change. And it's also very harsh. Uh, we are starting to find out just a little glimpse of how harsh it can be when people are losing their jobs. When we saw the reaction to the virus and how churches were treated versus other quote unquote necessary uh, organizations and institutions and businesses. And, um, and, and that will just increase and increase. And so it, this, it's a fantasy what he's trying to give you. He's, he's trying to like 
get you to assume that, well, yeah, of course, like Islamic countries, it's wrong. Atheistic countries, it's wrong. But America somehow is just, it's not part of any of that somehow. Well, yeah, America is not a Christian nation in the sense of a sacralized society that they were trying to get away from in Europe. It's still influenced, though, by Christianity. And in that sense, it is a Christian society. It, it does have a Christian foundation for its government. And it was meant to be a federal republic, not a democracy, a federal republic, where these laws would be implemented, different measures at different levels. And so once you get up to the national government level, it wasn't supposed to have the the full table of the Ten Commandments being applied at that level in every way. That was for states to do. So uh, anyway, it, it shows, in my opinion, just a lack of understanding, a lack of civics, a lack of history to try to make the point that he's making. But I sadly believe that many Christians are actually under the same impression. I was taught this at seminary, principle pluralism. That that's what we need to, to to try to shoot for because that will ensure we have religious freedom and LGBT people can do their thing and we can all, all live in harmony. It's a, that's, sorry, the left is totalitarian. It doesn't work that way. They're not going to not be totalitarian. You have to see them for who they are. And uh, and that's not what's happening. So yeah, it's interesting how Mueller said what he said uh, there, that he's embracing this because he probably sees what's, what's on the horizon, that Christians are more and more, because of segments like this, embracing this this concept because they think that all christian nationalism nationalism means is we should have a christian uh values and, and kind of like it was before and so they're like yeah and uh so, so i don't know whether this is a mistake on the part of the left or the left is like actually corralling us into trying to accept a term that a wider group of the population will reject and so it's a strategy on their part to kind of like tempt us into labeling ourselves with this this label that's I, I don't know i don't know what they're doing exactly or if they're even thinking that far ahead but i do know they're disgusted with it and this is like the perfect vacation destination advertisement for moscow idaho it's it's gonna just motivate people more and more i think on the right to to adopt it yeah, it's really fascinating um, because really when we look at it, Christian nationalism, and, and Anthea brought this up earlier, is, is about power. And when we think of that in terms of a democracy and a functioning democracy, um, it's about sharing power and playing by the same rules. And so with Christian nationalism, we find over and over that if it comes down to democracy or power, they're going to choose power every time. And mm. so this idea of, of a country uh, for the people, by the people, it's really a country for a particular people, by so what if a number of people move into Moscow and they vote the bums out and it's a, and they have Christians that run the town uh, at, at that point, at city council? Wouldn't that be democracy? Sounds like they're using the mechanisms that are already present to try to evoke a change. That's not opposed to democracy. They're not cheating. They're just using the mechanisms that are available. By a particular mm -hmm. people. And so... For those in the GOP, um, trying to figure out, are we really about democracy, where we're going to play by the same rules, yeah. or not? And um, that's the big question, I think, at stake. You know, and one of the things that I think some of us have struggled to sort of get our arms around is, how are Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, two female Republicans, such big advocates of Christian nationalism? And you had this gentleman on who is... You made it clear. Mm -hmm. Every marriage is a kingdom, and the man is the king. Right. I mean, it is sort of like, this is one of those where it's it's... It's hard to wrap my, my arms around that. It, it absolutely is. And I asked him, I mean, it, like I said. I because some women want to be the queen. 
why can't you be equal in a marriage? And he's like, well, we weren't made that way to be equal. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is not about biology. It's about intelligence. It's about dignity. It's about who you are. But that's not how he looks at it. He takes mm -hmm. a very literal reading of the Bible. And I can't understand mm -hmm. why a woman would, would submit to this. Let's pivot. Let me spell it out for you. Last week, we the whole world, it seems like, just about honored the death of a monarch in Great Britain. They still are. And it was all pomp and circumstance. And it, it was time for the fantasies that young women have had since they were little girls about princesses and queens and castles to just come alive and to just fangirl all over it. When, if you think about it, monarchy should be, especially British monarchy, shouldn't that be the example of the worst kind of hierarchy? That because of uh, genetics, not because of hard work or anything like that, just because of genetics, someone is in a certain position of honor. And uh, that, and it's, they're white. I mean, it's white privilege. It's, uh, it's this antiquated thing that, you know, in America had a good sense to get away from. And it, why is it though that it's so honored? It's so cherished, even by people who would bristle at any idea of monarchy coming here. Well, it's because I said this in the podcast last week, there's something within us that really wants hierarchy, that wants an example, that wants the pomp and circumstance and ceremony and tradition and custom, that looks at something like that and says it, it, it forms identity. It shows that some things are worth caring about, that there's actually a gravity to these offices. It's not just something stale, like, you know, a senator in a suit who happens to win an election because he had a lot of money. It's, there's something, there's, it's outside of market forces. There's just something about it that we are attracted to. I can't really quantify all of it, but it's, it's embedded within us. And this would even be more deeply embedded with us. This would be more fundamental to who we are that there are differences between men and women. And women, I think they naturally actually want, unless they you know, have grown up just suppressing this because of all the innovative academic things they've read or watched or listened to, they want to, women who, who have been spared that, want to be the queen of the house. They wanna have a king. They wanna have uh, a man who's responsible, who's loving, who takes care of them, who provides for them, uh, who they can submit to, who, you know, they, that's naturally what a woman actually, I think, deep down wants. And it shouldn't be a mystery. Uh, this is human civilization pre the feminist movement. Feminist movement is it's like a, uh, it, it, it's an anomaly that seeks to disregard the, a created order that has been assumed for thousands of years. So her can, it's, it's interesting that we're only downstream, you know, what, 170 years from the inception of the feminist movement, 180 years. And you have people in Western civilization who are just like, they can't figure out why a woman would, would want that, would, would want a patriarchal setup. It's like, well, that was, that's just kind of the way it's always been. And in many of the um, lower classes and middle classes, it still is that way. You have to get a bunch of academic garbage in your head before you start really suppressing that stuff. How much uh, to the campaign trail? I think a lot of these 
self-described Christian nationalist statewide level, Carlos, are going to lose. It's probably, I think Doug Mastriano is more likely to lose than win. He's, not try, he's running an odd campaign. But just being the nominee, haven't the seeds been planted for more of these candidates? Well, it depends, Chuck. I mean, this could be part of the trap that Republicans have set up for themselves where they elect the most, quote-unquote, conservative candidate out of primaries, and then these people just mm -hmm. can't win. So eventually, this movement will likely just be extinguished because people mm -hmm. get tired of losing. That, that's one theory. But certainly, I mean, it shows that at least there is a, a critical mass of support that can, right. can get these people past primaries. And by the way, going back to Christianity, and Ann, maybe you could shed some light on this, but... Christianity. I mean, Jesus Christ invited people to follow. Never, yeah. it, it was never an imposition, right? Because twist their arm. Let's put it like that. He did not twist their arm. You could come or not. You know, you want to follow this guy, you don't. Yeah. That's that's all it is. But who's twisting arms to be uh, to convert to Christianity in this scenario? Who? Show me the person. Who's the person that's like we should have forced conversions? They're like smugly laughing. Oh my goodness, Jesus is would be so against this. It's a straw man at this point, though. So I mean, they went from. A depiction that Christians would embrace, that it, it's any kind of influence in society, to now they're just, this is the sloppiness of the left on this. They, they, now they're just kind of like misunderstanding it to be, well, it's forced conversions. You're concerned that this, that this spreads, that even these losing Christian nationalist candidates, by losing their main mainstreamed, I mean, you know, we're going to get criticized doing this program because. Yes. Hey, you're, you're going to bring more attention, and that attention inevitably is going to lead to people, oh, it's more mainstream than I thought. Yeah, and I think one of the important things to remember is that if we don't pay attention to this right now, we may be on the losing end later. I mm -hmm. think, you know, to tie off of this comment about the GOP, the GOP has had slogans like this. I just want you to notice we may be on the losing end. So the, it, it, that gave away the bias of the whole room. The assumption is we are trying to oppose them. This whole piece is about opposing them. This is not an objective news report. This is a slanted attempt to try to dissuade uh, people from following this movement, this Christian nationalist movement. It's been whether it's been make America great again or American exceptionalism, all these kinds of things. Right. What is more interesting right now is that the religious and the political are being put together. Yeah. And that makes for a very powerful mix. And I think whether or not people win in November, yeah. we still have to contend with this in 2024. And there's something else, though, going on here, which is sort of uh, the country's growing more secular, which mm -hmm. almost at the exact same time, those that are religious are almost becoming more fundamentalists. Right. But uh, almost out of fear of this growing secularization. And that's, that's what I think it gets to, is yeah. that there is a great deal of fear. And if you look at the issues that they grab onto, the issue of abortion, the issue of same-sex marriage, opposing same-sex marriage, the issue of gender identity, all of those are driven by fear. Mm -hmm. And I asked Pastor Wilson that. I said, America is becoming less Christian. This whole episode is fear. This whole entire panel is fear about Christian nationalists and the power they're going to have. And now we hear, well, if it's driven by fear, it's somehow like that's a bad thing. It shouldn't, things shouldn't be driven by fear. Your belief should not be driven by fear. The whole episode is driven by fear. Like, Talk about a lack of self-awareness. Fewer Americans want to be part of organized religion. And he just sees that as, as a further challenge. He believes he can change minds. And Andrew, is it almost a feature that Moscow is the place trying to do this because they almost want to be reactionary to the majority of the population? It's easier to find fundamentalists mm -hmm. in a reactionary, in a place that 
that that you know maybe you feel like you're the outsider the whole program is reacting but now reactionary is not good it's so weird to me. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the insights of, of sociology is it's uh, easiest to define who we are when we know who we're not. And so when you can define yourself against who you're not, that's really powerful. It creates very powerful in-group bonds. Um, we're going to pull together. We're going to face the outside threat. The, thing the whole panel is defining themselves against Christian nationalists, that they are... We are not Christian nationalists. It's a separation. They are, and let's put them under the microscope. The whole thing is a separation. There's no inclusivity here. There's no welcoming a Christian nationalist to the panel, and let's try to break bread, and let's try to be inclusive. It is all about dividing. And yet, then you have Andrew Whitehead here talking about how it's just, it's so, oh my goodness. I don't know. The hypocrisy is astounding because it's like right in front of them. And these are educated people. It's a professor of sociology. I don't understand this. How come they can't see that what they're accusing the Christian nationalists of doing is the very basis for their entire program? Of, um, and it becomes a really central part of your identity. And, and that's what's so powerful about Christian nationalism. All right. The separation of church and state. How, how strong is that still in our country? Anthea? I think the idea of it is very strong. The reality of it is not. And, you know, if we think back to Christian coalition and all these other groups, no, how about we think back to Obama's interfaith initiatives, uh, pushing social justice into churches and mosques and, uh, you know, religious institutions. How about we think back to that? No, we're going to go to the Christian coalition. We're going to go back to the 1980s and 90s that, and what r religious right people were doing. How about we go to uh, Democratic candidates who have campaigned very recently at historically black churches? Is that a, a violation? No, we're not going to talk about that. We're going to go back to the, the 80s and the 90s. Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. Groups that were passing out voter guides in the churches in the 1990s. If we think about the ways in which, you know, Trump voters invoked, invoked all of this and Trump himself invoked this, we think about the ways in which candidates now really play to all of this. I would say that the separation of church and state is very thin, if not non-existent. Very quickly, Carlos, if you tried to run a campaign that said, I'm going to be so strict about separating church and state, I'm not even going to try to campaign at churches. Could you win? I think so. It depends where in the country, yeah. but in, in more suburban districts, I think you still okay. could. You're more in, optimistic in, about in it than I thought. Yeah. Much harder. All right. What a terrific conversation. Thank you all. Thank you all for being with us on this first episode of our fifth season here at Meet the Press Reports. The next episode, get ready to meet the American. I do not want to live in a country governed by these people, <laughs> or a town, or and I and I pro and I do actually right now. It's I mean I, those are the people that run the town I'm in probably, but. Um, man, my goodness, uh, takeaways. Well, Christian, we found out that Christian nationalism is a spectrum that can mean anything from thinking that Christianity has a place in America to, uh, forced conversions. Apparently, uh, we found out that the threats of Christian nationalism are that it's going to threaten the social order by imposing ideas of patriarchy, uh, male and female roles of um, biblical ethics when it comes to things like abortion. So th these are the main threats. We, we, the tangible uh, realities that were appealed to are things like, the, the, in Moscow at least, were things like tattoos and women wearing dresses. Uh, the, the, these are the, the concrete examples of what Christian nationalists, I guess, are going to do on the local level. Uh, we've learned that Meet the Press is totally hypocritical. <laughs> 
we already knew that probably. But you know, I, I think at the at the end of the day, the the real thing that probably is helpful for all of us is considering whether or not we should take on this label of Christian nationalist, and whether this is something. What the, is this a movement we want to get behind? And this is where I'm at with this. After watching that segment, I think that this movement and and this this label has not been properly defined. The dust is still settling. I was actually talking yesterday to someone who's, uh, a, I would say, a, a major thinker in um, or player, uh, influencer in the religious, uh, Christian political kind of on the right religious uh, groups. And and he basically had the same analysis. We we shared with one another kind of what we thought. And he's just like, look, this term, this Christian nationalist term, there are so many ways it's being used right now, and so many people now writing books. And do, the the dust hasn't really settled here yet. We don't know exactly what who's going to be the main um, the the main one you, who who people look to that's carrying this term and using it. You know, is it Doug Wilson or is it going to be Al Mohler or who is it that whose version of Christian nationalism is here? And now that it's becoming more popular, you have people I think jumping into to take that term. People who even were kind of pushing the social justice stuff are now saying there's Christian nationalists. So is it is the term going to be watered down? What is it? And that's one of the reasons, I mean, I joke about it. I'll say like, I'm a Christian nationalist because I, I know it brings up the, like, it makes people freak out on the left and it's, you know, like, oh my goodness, he's a Nazi. You know, that's their, their reaction. But I don't, I don't use that myself because it's such a new term and it, and be, and it's so, and not just because it's new, but because it's, it's both new and it's all at the same time being used by so many different individuals in different kinds of ways. And so this is uh, to kind of put a cap on uh, the text message thread that I had with a friend last night about this, who said, you know, is Christian nationalism good? Should I use the term? I said, you know, wisdom in my mind is I wouldn't be using it right now necessarily just because I don't know exactly what it means. And I don't know what it evokes when, when people watch news segments like that one. Even that one's so convoluted. That you don't, don't even have a definition by the end of it of what Christian nationalism really is. So if you're talking to an audience and if they understand Christian nationalism to mean biblical influence in the culture or in the local community or the nation, sure, I'm a Christian nationalist. If that's what you mean by it. But... We just, I, I just don't see that being the only definition that's being put out there. So uh, we'll have to see kind of what happens with the term. But it, there are older terms that I think you can use to try to evoke that same kind of concept. You can just call yourself like people did up until not long ago, just a Christian conservative, a conservative Christian. Uh, or, I mean, I, I'll say that I'm a paleo conservative. I'm a Christian and I'm a paleo conservative. You know, um, you can call yourself, I mean, there's all kinds of other specific things you can call yourself that would denote kind of what's happening in, in this town where Christians are trying to uh, kind of have an influence. You could call yourself a Christian, uh, a localist and a Christian. But I don't I don't see the need, at least at this point in my life, maybe that'll change, of, of taking on the label and um, I, maybe that'll change. But that's kind of where I'm at right now. So maybe some of you will disagree with me. I don't know. But if you do, or if you agree, either way, put a comment in the info section. I keep saying the info section. In the comment section. Put a comment there. Let me know what you think. Let me know. Should should we take on this term Christian nationalism, this pejorative that the media is trying to use? But hey, they often say, when they define it, it sounds pretty good. 
or should we just kind of nah we're not going to use that term at this point because we don't really know what it is uh that will i think um help a lot of people right now and we'll keep this discussion probably ongoing anyway someone i'm looking at the comments now there's a lot of uh comments in the live chat uh we are all fundamentalists now yeah i couldn't agree more that's how we're all being kind of treated that way it's that the left tends to like to use pejoratives they, they rotate them have you noticed that like uh we don't talk much about toxic masculinity today, but like five, six years ago, you know, it, 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 it just changes, you know, it went from white supremacist to now it's Christian nationalist. They keep changing. Uh, paleo conservative is a great term to use. I agree, but I, it's, you know, it has a sort of an academic, very specific kind of academic meaning. You can call yourself a Burkean conservative, which is pretty similar, I guess. And, so, or the old right, someone, some people call them the guy. It just means you're not a neoconservative. You're not these, you know, blaze and daily wire folks who are congratulating their friend who uh, happens to be, have a gay marriage and is having surrogate mothers raise his, carry his children. That, you know, that's not, I don't know what that is. That's not conservative, right? So paleo conservative is like, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I'm kind of like the, the old. Paleo just means old. I'm, I'm on the old right. I'm an old conservative here. Um, anyway, there's more that could be said there. But uh, some other comments here. Man, there's so many. Um, and so many good comments, too. There's some pretty funny comments here, too. So thank you for everyone who uh, participated. Someone asked uh, if I was talking about the 1960s feminists uh, when I was talking about feminism. I'm talking about the whole kit and caboodle going back to 1848. Seneca Falls uh, Convention. Everyone here who's watching, you should read. It doesn't take long. Just go read the Seneca Falls Declaration from 1848 and ask yourself whether this was really about a woman's right to vote or whether there was something much bigger behind that. So um, anyway, I appreciate uh, everyone's uh, contributions. And please don't forget that right now there is a sale. It's ending next Tuesday. Uh, and uh, September 16th through the 21st only book sale. You can get autographed copies of Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict, and Social Justice Goes to Church, The New Left and Modern American Evangelicalism for only $11.50. These are autographed copies. This is a good deal. Uh, now, I, I had said on the last podcast, there's some like lightly worn books for cheaper. Those are already sold out. I said before, you can also get A.D. Robles' books, Social Justice Pharisees, when you buy these two. That deal's gone because I ran out of those books already, which is good. But this deal is still ongoing. And so you're going to want to take advantage of this uh, before supplies run out. Uh, and this will get you ahead of the holidays if you're trying to find good books to give to your pastor or to someone who might be interested in this. Uh, the first one, Social Justice Goes to Church, is just really a, the story, the history of how social justice thinking got into evangelicalism. And the second one, Christianity and social justice, is more putting a fine definition on social justice, understanding what it is, and then some apologetics. How is this in conflict with Christianity? So, hope that is helpful for all of you. God bless. More coming by now. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. 
Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.